Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please let's turn to Luke chapter 9. On Sunday night, just gone past, we looked at Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. This idea of denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following him. And verse 27 of that indicates the transfiguration, what comes next. Uh, and I guess my level of intrigue and interest in that has led us this morning into the transfiguration. Tonight, uh, we're going to look at the next part of that passage, starting in verse 37, where Jesus heals the boy with the unclean spirit. So please, I'll be reading from the ESV translation, Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28 to 36. <clears throat> and it reads, now about, eight these, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, this morning, would you open our hearts? Lord, would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you rebuke us? Would you build us up in Christ Jesus? Amen. As I've just said, verse 27 of the previous passage leads us into this. What do we find? We find here written a rather bizarre event. But we find an event that is incredibly exciting. We find an event that gives us a glimpse of the glory of God. And I want us this morning to focus on the experience of these three disciples. I want us to imagine that we were there. I want to focus on what they, said, what they saw, what they said, what they heard, and what they did. I'll also be moving from Luke into Matthew chapter 17 where we find this same story. We'll be looking at, at some of the things that Matthew pulls out of that as well. So let's start. What did the disciples see? Verses 29 to 31. It reads this. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Have you ever seen something utterly incredible that has left your jaw on the floor? I don't know if you saw Wayne Rooney's goal in the MLS last week from before the halfway line. Top bin, 60 yards, that goal went in. Wow, when you see that goal. Maybe you've seen a hole-in-one on a golf course. Maybe you've been in an art gallery and you've caught a glimpse of the Mona Lisa or you've caught a glimpse of something that just speaks to you and you go, wow. Maybe you've seen something that hasn't been recorded. Maybe you've been part of a world record attempt. 
But have you ever done or seen something utterly incredible that left you speechless? Because I imagine that, that this event that is going on leaves the disciples with their jaws on the floor and this wow reaction. I imagine that the three of them were just dumbfounded with no idea of what to say and what to do. And we'll see in their response how true that is. So what did the disciples see? They saw Jesus. They saw the man that they were ministering with. They saw their teacher. They saw their friend with his face altered. We're told in Matthew 17 that his face shone like the sun. We see a Jesus that is being transformed. We see clothes that are dazzling white. And we see two men talking to him that just happened to be Moses and the prophet Elijah. They appeared in glory. Why did they appear in glory? Because they were in glory. They were in heaven. They were in eternity past with God. And they came and they spoke to Jesus about what he would accomplish. These three disciples witnessed the glorification of the human body of Jesus. This word metamorphosis is the word that is used. It just means this changing of another form, this glory that is coming. On this occasion, we see the body of Jesus undergoing change. So it shone so brightly as the sun. We know that at the time of this, the earthly ministry of Jesus was coming to a close. He had acknowledged by now that he was the Messiah. He had predicted many times over his death and resurrection. And now to just a few, he was here to show them his divine glory. What did the disciples see? They saw light. They saw Jesus change. They saw Moses. They saw Elijah. They saw a cloud which they entered. What was all of it? All of it was to do with the glory of of God. I love Peter's reflection later on in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. He says this, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. What did they see? They were eyewitnesses of God's majesty. Could you imagine anything more incredible than being an eyewitness to the majesty of our God? The transfiguration provides us with evidence that Jesus is the divine son of God. It's not coincidental that this has happened since Jesus has acknowledged himself as the Christ. The one who left the glory of heaven to come into this world. And the three of these disciples on this occasion are getting glimpses of this glory. We have the testimony of the transfiguration. We have the testimony of Elijah and Moses. Why Elijah and Moses? Why not Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people? Why not David, the one who Jesus would descend from? Or Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? Why these two? We're not really given any explanation. But Moses was the man of the Old Testament law that God had given to the people. And we know that Jesus came to fulfill that law. So in that, there is significance. Jesus came to fulfill the problem of sin. 
Jesus came to provide us with the answer. The law pointed out this great problem. The law pointed out this great problem that none of us could achieve. And Jesus came and gave the solution. Elijah, an outstanding figure of the Old Testament. A great prophet. And I think it shows something as well of the fulfillment of the prophets. The fulfillment of the prophets in Jesus. We read at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he appears with the one who brought the law. And with the one who is one of the most significant prophets. Why? Because he is proving again who he is to his disciples. I am the Christ, I have told you, I'm the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, and here you go. Here is your evidence, come and see. What did the disciples see? They saw the glory of God before them. They saw the glory of God in the transformation of Jesus' body, and they saw the glory of God surrounding Moses and Elijah. They saw something of God's glory and the coming of of the kingdom. I think it's an interesting observation. What was Jesus doing when his appearance changed? He was praying. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What was he doing? He was praying. Why? Because Jesus is always, always praying. In the life of Jesus, we see this explicit link between prayer and transformation. And here we see something of that. And I absolutely believe that is the case with our lives. That there is link between our prayer lives and the transformational work of our God. Why? Because Jesus spent time retreating from the people. We see it all the time. We see him praying on the mountain before the raising of Lazarus. In the garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. Even on that cross, our Lord prayed. And I guess my challenge from that is how is your prayer life? Do you want to be more and more transformed into the image of God? Sometimes it's easy for us to give those desperate little God help me. And then we'll wait until the next issue and then we'll go God please help me. But that's not what our God is there for. Our God is a God who loves communication with his people. Our God is a God who loves to hear from us. But it takes time and it takes effort to spend with our God. Jesus retreated and spent time with God. And so should we. What did the disciples say? Verses 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you. And one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. What did they say? We read here of Peter's word, Peter speaking on behalf of them. And he says, Jesus, we're delighted we're here. Can we please make three tents so that we can stay here? This is the best place I've ever been. I'm here with my saviour. I'm here with Moses. I'm here with Elijah. This is phenomenal. Let's build three tents and let's stay here. What an utterly ridiculous thing to say. What a crazy thing to say. Have you ever said something and in that split second you just wish the ground would open up and swallow you? Just in that moment you think, what have I just said? Bearing in mind here that we see the glory of God, that we see two men that are here in glory, that we have Jesus in front of us transformed. Can I build you a tent? 
He is so missed. What is going on here? He's so utterly perplexed that he makes this ludicrous suggestion. He's saying, let's just stay here. This is great. I've got everything I need on this mountain. Let's just, let's stay. Let's not go back down. Don't worry about the other disciples and the other people and everything that's to come because I'm not acknowledging that that's happening anyway. So let's just stay here. They wanted to build tents. But it's clarified when it says not knowing what he said. And you know, for us as people and for him in that situation, sometimes it is infinitely better for us to say nothing. He had lost this sense of the spiritual. His mind was given to the realm of material things. He could think only of what was in front of him, but not see what was there. Imagine that these men, the spirits of these men, coming and sleeping in tents. Peter completely failed to comprehend the significance of Jesus' glory or of the testimony of Moses and Elijah. He seems again completely oblivious to the affirmation that Jesus must go to Jerusalem and die. That the glory in front of them is a preview of the full glory that they will see one day. And in confusion and fear, Peter can only think about building tents. I'm sure his intentions were good. I'm sure that he meant right by it that he was trying to care for those that were with him. He was obviously content to stay there. He wasn't interested in going to Jerusalem or Jesus coming back again or the disciples, any of those things. But Peter was caught up in his own plans rather than with Jesus. We know he didn't want Jesus to leave. Matthew 16, 22. This is where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus said he's going to go, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you you don't need to die Jesus you stay here what is our lesson here we are so limited in our minds for a man to walk with Jesus for a man to witness the miracles of Jesus to see something of God's glory before him yet to still be so far away in his finite mind he's so far away he can't see he can't comprehend the immensity of what is in front of him I guess the question with that is how big is your God is your God the right size to fit into our little finite heads or is your God so much bigger than you can ever comprehend is your God the God of miracles is your God the God of salvation is your God the God that reigns supreme that has all glory and all wonder is your God the God that can make absolutely anything possible? Or are we just stuck here thinking about tents? Are we stuck here thinking about the little things? The unimportant things? We kind of have two options here. Is our reality with Jesus? And are we okay with not knowing everything? Because it's more than okay not to know everything. Because we never will. Or are we stuck like Peter in our own mind? Are we open to the things of God or are we stuck where we are? What are the disciples here? Verses 30, the second half of verse 30 and 31. Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We read. 
Of everything that Elijah and Moses could discuss with Jesus, what did they come and talk about? They weren't here reflecting on the glory of God, but they were talking to him as a friend. They were talking about his departure, the imminent sacrifice that was before him, the purpose of his earthly ministry, his departure, his exodus, just as Moses led those people. God bringing people out the bondages of slavery, the exodus of God's people from sin and from the wrath of God. All of this would be accomplished at Jerusalem. I think it's significant that the conversation they had was about the saving work of Christ through his death. Because that is what was central to Jesus. Yet the truth, this truth is what the disciples found most difficult to comprehend. Moses and Elijah not only gave confirmation of Jesus' divine glory, but also of his divine plan. What else was said? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The voice of God spoke. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Matthew 17, 5. As he was still still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice said, I imagine this moment, Peter is just speaking because he doesn't know what else to do. He's speaking, he's speaking, he's speaking. And it's like God comes in and says, Peter, be silent. This is God, this is my son. Listen to him. How often do I need to hear that? How often do I need to be quiet and do I need to let go of my self-obsession? I need to let go of my self-righteousness. That I need a rebuke from the very voice of God himself. How often am I so caught up in thinking about tents? How often am I so caught up in thinking about my own things? But then the voice of God penetrates every bit of that. We see three testimonies on the side of this mountain. The testimony of the transformation of Jesus in that time. We see the testimony of Moses and Elijah. And now, most surprisingly, we see the testimony of God the Father. This this is where this passage for me becomes most exciting. Our final point. What What the disciples did. Verse 34. As he was saying these things... A cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. What did they do? What was the response to the transfiguration of Jesus? What was the response to Moses and to Elijah and to the voice of God? We have the brass Peter here who thinks he knows what he's doing. We've got the two companions that stood there and now they stand in the awesome presence of the God Almighty. We don't read that they stood there excited, jumping up and down, but we read that they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because no man in our current state could stand in the glory of God, in the presence of this holy and righteous God and be excited. Why? Because it reveals our unworthiness. The passages that humble me most, that break me the most, that puts my sinfulness into perspective are these encounters. These encounters with man and God. 
Again in Matthew 17, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love this. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Our only ability in the presence of a holy God is to fall on our face and be terrified. Do you understand how unworthy you are of God? That's a difficult question to ask ourselves. But do you understand how far away from God we are in our human state? Do you understand how far short of him you fall? Do you understand that you deserve absolutely nothing from the holy and almighty God? Because full exposure of us in our sinful states to the glory of God would just consume each one of us. These three disciples didn't even see God. They just heard his voice and they were flat on the floor. Do we understand how glorious the glory of God is? Do we grasp something of the immensity and the awesomeness of our God? God is so holy, we are so unholy. We are so undeserving of this, God. But it is when we begin to grasp something of our unworthiness. It is when we begin to grasp something of how far away we are from God that we put Christ in his rightful place. Because our sinfulness has taken us so far from God. The modern day church just wants to diminish, diminish and diminish what sin is. Don't ever please be grieved by our sin. Let us look at our sin as repulsive as it is. Because we are so undeserving of the righteous and holy God. That it took his son. That it took part of that Godhead to give up what is rightfully his in eternity. So that you might be justified and brought into the kingdom of God. There is nothing small about Jesus. There is nothing small about the gospel. There is nothing little about any of this. It's not just some little decision that we make, but it is something that took God himself to come and put right. That shows us the enormity of sin. The beauty is on that judgment day, On the day that we are judged, we are judged clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The judge himself looks upon us as clothed in that righteousness. Do you know the idea that we serve a holy and a righteous and a pure God should overwhelm us? It should overwhelm us, his magnitude. But it shouldn't just overwhelm us, it should drive us to the cross. It should drive us to the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it is the cross that makes you and that makes me worthy. It is the cross and it is only the cross that makes us able to enter the presence of God. Can a sinful man like you and I be reconciled to a just God that demands that we be punished? A question asked by Paul Washer. The answer to that is yes we can. By the lovely and the beautiful Christ. By the one that came and stood in our place. The Son of God suffers the wrath that we so deserve. And all these things become reality when faced with the immensity of God. They are faced with the glory of God. But what is awesome is we don't need to fall on our faces in fear before our God. 
because we have been justified and we have been accepted through his son. But we must always recognise what we deserve. We must always recognise. And I think it's in those moments when we recognise what we deserve that it is that moment that we recognise something of the immensity of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, you know, I, I challenge us as we gather for communion this morning, let that overwhelm you. Let that sense that God is so infinitely perfect and we are so utterly undeserving, but yet Jesus raised us to that height so that we may be with God. Let that, let that overwhelm you. Let that drive you to the cross. Let us repent of our sins. Let's, let's not just say, God, I'm sorry, but let us repent of our sin. Jesus' response to them in Matthew 17, 7, but Jesus came and touched them, get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Our response to God, our response to the glory of God and to the work of Christ is worship and his adoration with our lives, with the way that we spend our time, with our devotion to him. When we sing God's praises together and privately, are you singing to the one who is of, in, of infinite worth are you singing to the one who has saved you let us serve let us think let us act let us speak and do everything that we do as an act of worship to our God let us give to God the adoration that is so rightly rightly his do you know I've been really challenged this week by my moralism by my rule setting and I can't help but think how easy it is for us as Christians just to become rule-based people. How easy for it is for us to be guided by rules rather than our faith. To have this faith that is based on rules. Matt Chandler said Christianity isn't some sort of get better morally program that we so often put it down to. Yes, it's important that we live right. Yes, it's important that we have boundaries in place. Yes, it is important that we call out sin when we see it in our own life. But that doesn't come first. Rules don't come first. What comes first is our overwhelmingness of Jesus. Is seeing Jesus in his rightful place. Rather as we understand the holiness of God and the work of Christ. When that consumes us, when that drives us, that is when we begin to live gospel-centered lives that live lives that glorify and honor God. I just want to finish again with those words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were on the holy mountain. What was the result for these three disciples? There was boldness and there was courage to preach the gospel. We saw his majesty. We saw his glory. And what a small part of it they will have seen. Jesus proved beyond any doubt who he was to them. And I guess my closing question for us is, where do you stand today with your saviour? 
Jesus is of infinite importance or no importance. Jesus can't be a little bit important. That half Jesus, that idea that it's something that's okay, that it's for a Sunday, that I'm really all about rules and Jesus is in there somewhere. It's all nonsense. Jesus is either everything to us or he's nothing to us. And there is nothing in the middle. Are we a bit like Peter? Are we caught up in the distractions? Are we confused? Do we struggle to focus on him? Or are we at that point where we're like the disciples after the glory has descended? Are we consumed by his majesty that we cannot help but worship and adore our God? Do you know, each one of us who believes one day will be an eyewitness to the glory of God. What a beautiful thought that is. We will not just be eyewitnesses, but we will be part of God's glory. What a picture and what a thought. Eternal glory, eternal praise, eternal satisfaction with him. And we can do it with boldness. Why? Because his word declares to us these incredible works, these incredible things of God. Because the beauty is that the God that we are not worthy of calls us his brothers and his sisters. Let us go out with courage because our Savior has reconciled us. And let us go out from this place in joy, knowing that on that cross at Calvary, Jesus paid that price. Jesus did it all. Let's pray. God, how great is your glory, how great is your majesty. Lord, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is our God. God, we thank you. We can't help but thank you for all that you have done for us. There was no obligation upon you. There was no need for you to come into this world. But God, how you love us. God, we thank you for giving us away. We thank you for sending Christ. God, you are awesome and you are majestic. And this morning, as we gather as your people, we bow before you in adoration. Amen.